Thanks, Jane. As um, Jane indicated, Mike is going to be um, teaching us this morning from Psalms. So let's turn to Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. <coughs> Excuse me. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. <coughs> Excuse me. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king of Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take their refuge in him. Hi, everyone. Let's down just a smidge. This is a great psalm. It's a psalm that has just so beautifully been written. It's, a, it's got so much in it. It's just beautifully crafted. It's got drama. It's got a bit of humor that's kind of uh, meant to really hit us hard. There's big battles that are going on. There's a tragedy. There's a happy ending. Kind of reminds me of a current movie that's out at the moment. <laughs> but this actually is real, and this actually does impact our life. So why don't we actually ask God to help us to hear from Psalm 2 today. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this morning we have together, for hearing from our missionaries uh, and, and what's coming up at Summer Encounter, uh, for having uh, Roger's friends and family here and being able to uh, baptise Ben. But as we come now to your word, we ask that you'll help us to hear it and to be transformed by it. Amen. Now, uh, I had a theory. I may have told you this before, I can't remember, but my theory is there was a time when any instance in life I could recall an episode in two television shows of my kind of childhood nineties, one of them's still on, and the other one's kind of gone retro, and all the teenagers seem to be watching it again. Two television shows that nearly everything that happens in life, you can remember an episode about them. Does anyone have a guess what the episode TV shows are? Not Ninja Turtles. <laughs> wow, you must love the Ninja Turtles show. <laughs> Simpsons, that's right. The Simpsons, and the other one is Seinfeld. <laughs> Simpsons and Seinfeld was my theory. I, I used to try and anything that was happening, come up with an episode or something uh, from, uh, from one of those uh, two shows uh, that in my younger days I was a little bit obsessed with. But Psalm 2 kind of reminds me of two moments in The, in the Simpsons. If you never watch The Simpsons, it doesn't particularly matter. But Homer's a bit of a goose. Uh, he's kind of really selfish and he's kind of really rude to Ned, his kind of goody-two-shoes uh, uh, religious neighbour. And Homer finds a little uh, six-foot tiki statue in the trash. 
And so as you do, he sets it up in the backyard uh, and, and runs a gas line into the idol, so it spews out flames. And he calls Ned over and he says to Ned, can your God do that? Ned replies, well, actually, Homer, we worship the same God. Homer says, not so. I am your God now. As the tiki uh, drops to the, uh, from his hands, falls to the ground, setting his backyard ablaze. But in the Simpsons, Homer's not the only one who thinks himself as one who has power and is a bit of a deity. Mr. Burns, the crutchety old man uh, who ruled the power plant and who wanted to be lord of all of the Simpsons world. Um, If you ever want to hurt my feelings, uh, when I was a teenager, when I was uh, sick a lot with colds, I used to get called Mr. Burns. So uh, that's another issue. So let's move on back to Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns, uh, Mr. Burns... He stands on his balcony, kind of like uh, people who make declarations, and you often see in Rome when the Pope steps out on his balcony, it's kind of like that scene, and he steps out onto his balcony and he says, you may now praise me as the Almighty. At this point, his robe catches fire and he's left standing naked in his really kind of deformed old figure. It's a mockery and it's kind of silly. But today... This is actually what we encounter in Psalm 2. So what we're encountering in Psalm 2 is what happens when someone thinks that the Lord can be overthrown and that we can have the power. That what we see is the reality of we will kind of lose our robe, our backyard kind of ends up aflame. And so what I want us to do today, as we consider uh, who has the power, is I want us to see the movement of this beautiful psalm. There's three movements there. There's a simple outline um, in your leaflets there. You see that there's people's attitudes to, to God, to God and his king. And then as we move on from the attitudes to God and his king, well, the king responds. And the response is kind of a bit of humor, a bit of comedy, and really profound seriousness at the same time. And so then the movement goes to, well, what's left? People try and overthrow God. God responds. What do people then do about it? So let's have a look at this great psalm together. Uh, Open up uh, uh, in front of you, if you've got a Bible in front of you, and let's have a look. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. It starts off, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. See, right from the start, we have conflict. Right from the beginning, we have one group rising up against someone else. So what is this rebellion? What are they... Uh, rising up against? What are they wanting? Well, we see it very clearly in these verses. It's the nations. It's the peoples. It's the kings and the rulers. So what we see in the beginning here is there's not much other people left. It's not what we call a friendly argument either. They are raging. They are not happy. The people are plotting. 
They're scheming. They're trying to figure out how they can win. The kings are trying to make themselves out to be the authority, the ones with all power, and the rulers are taking counsel, or let's say, think what's behind they're saying is craftily working together for their own ends. There is a real conflict. And who is, who is it that they're plotting against, raging at, setting themselves over, ultimately trying to overthrow? The Lord and his anointed one, we see in the beginning of this psalm. This is the great rebellion, an attempt to overthrow the Lord. No rebellion in the history of mankind, and there's been a lot. That's not an understatement, is there? Over every corner, seems like every day, over every century, there are horrendous rebellions, sometimes needed, but mostly disastrous. We don't seem to like peace. It's hard not to realize how much of our history is littered with uprisings and wars, World War II, Napoleon, Israel and Palestine's in conflict, the US Civil War, history of England and its monarchs, uh, uh, go to uh, uh, Africa and its conflict after conflict, Syria, ISIS, it's all a mess. Everyone's trying to overthrow everyone. There is conflict. But this picture isn't amongst humanity versus humanity. It's the peoples versus God. And it far supersedes anything in our history. And the important thing here is to realize who is involved. It's not just those that are in charge. One of the um, musicians that I've... uh, I really enjoy, particularly um, in the early 2000s. Uh, he's still going around now, but a musician, John Butler, he often sings songs about what's wrong with the world. He doesn't necessarily always have particularly good answers, but he, he, he really does write well, and he, and he points out to what's wrong with the world. And in one of his songs, he talks about why there's always war and conflict, and he kind of does a multiple choice in the song and says, these are the options, why there's war, in his song, One Way Road. He says, A, maybe it's the government of today. B, maybe it's big business who thinks the whole world revolves around him and his power. C, maybe it's the corrupt official or uh, the one who's in between big business and the government, the man in the middle. Or maybe D, all those that try to plunder and, and, and take down this world. But that's not all. There should be an E, just to be clear. What we actually see is we can't separate ourselves from problems. Being part of this world, being part of understanding who we are, when it comes to this psalm, the point is there is E. All of the above, every single person, all of humanity. Can't just blame those in ultimate power. The peoples are plotting. The desire is all people want to be rid of God. And that's what verse 3 says. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. I want to separate themselves from the anointed one, have nothing to do with him. They don't want his rule or authority. They want to rid themselves of all restraint. I just want to be truly free. Quite bluntly, I think what we see in this psalm is that it's truly a description of the hatred of mankind against the Lord. 
And what we need to consider is, well, is this right? I think we actually kind of do see that this is the way the world is. In all sorts of different ways. Some are really offensive, some are subtle. Time and time again, we encounter situations where it's not PC to talk about Jesus, to not mention the Bible in mostly in kind of public settings. You're not allowed to do that. And more and more and more, that becomes the case. The reality is, all the religions around the world, as, as, as harsh as that may sound, anyone who wants to reject God's anointed one, even with good intentions, or to use religion for evil, that's still a rebellion against God's anointed. A rebellion which is just, I actually want to be free. I do want to have my chains broken free. And so it's just about believing in myself and what matters to me and being happy. That's kind of a subtle rebellion. This general rebelling against God. Maybe it's just a kind of happy, friendly, suburban revolt. Where we like our family, everything looks fine, we're nice to the people around us, but God's nowhere. Because we have thrown off our fetters. But it doesn't look that bad. So how can we talk about it in this context? But this psalm, in just a few verses is confronting us. And I've laboured it today because I didn't want to uh, hold back. I want you to be confronted with the stark reality of what we're presented with. No matter who we are, we rage. We are the ones plotting in vain. We revolt against God. This is how God sees it uh, before people come to his anointed. And I wonder whether this is how you see it. Maybe not. I wonder whether today it's worth considering how you view God. That, sure, we're all nice people, but have you given God's king your time? As you consider that, we see a response from God in our, in our kind of next movement in this passage. It's where the psalm moves to a different scene, into the heavens, and now we see the one who has been plotted against and how he reacts. Is he concerned? Does he take countermeasures? Is he worried that everything is going to be destroyed? Is time ending? No. He laughs. He laughs. Look at verses 4 to 6. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, God cannot believe the stupidity. It is so absolutely ridiculous to think puny little humanity can wave his hands to the one who's in the heavens. Can you see why it's kind of a, 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 a mockery, a, a comedy, a ridiculous situation? We'll take you down, God. It's the Tower of Babel. How absurd. It's just ridiculous. And he knows it. So he laughs. What a hide humanity has to try this on. It's like God saying, you silly, silly little people. But it doesn't just mention what the Lord is doing. 
It reinforces his position by saying where he is. He's in the heavens. He is in, the, in power where even those who are raging, they can't even if they want to rage, rage all your life, but you can't reach me. And so he holds them in derision. He's holding them in contempt. It's not a laughter of joy. It's a laughter of mockery and disbelief and stupidity. And then it gets serious, if it's not already. Verse 5 and 6. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. All God does is speak. And he does it with a bang. In his wrath, after he sees they're ridiculous, he says, nothing's going to take me down and my king is going to rule. Nothing is going to change. Anything you're trying to do isn't going to make a difference. And I'll tell you what, this brings me back to this time of year every single year. You know, I was, uh, last night at 11 o'clock, I thought I'll have a quick look through the talk again and just go through it. And guess what? The same thing that happens over and over again, just like no matter what they try and do, nothing's going to change, nothing changes in my life. My office is never clean. And I couldn't find a sermon. <laughs> I couldn't find it because I decided to put it up on the, on the bookshelf so it'd be uh, there ready for me to grab. And I just forgot that I did that. And so on my crazy, messy desk, I couldn't find it. Nothing changes. Every year I get to this point and I want it all to be set out and clean and organized. And next year when Amanda and Jack share my office space, I want to apologize now. I'll do my best. But it's des- I'm, nothing changes. But here, we see the same thing. It's not going to make a difference. Plot all you like. And so we get to the work of the sun in verses 7 to 9. Look with me. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. See, this is very significant. There is a tension between uh, this psalm being maybe directed towards David, who uh, presumably uh, wrote the psalm. We can't be certain, though. The tension between an anointed one then and there and actually the ultimate one that it's speaking about. I wouldn't separate David from this psalm particularly, but actually it's just pointing to us, to the one who follows him. In Acts chapter 13, uh, when, the, when the church starts, we see, we see uh, in verses 32 to 35, this very psalm being referred to and Jesus being thrown right into this psalm. Have a look with me as it comes up on the screen. In verse 32 to 35. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. 
See, what we're seeing here is that uh, Paul preaching the gospel in Antioch, he explains by Jesus raising from the dead the fulfillment of this psalm and how spectacular that is. He directly links the work of Jesus to Psalm 2, verse 7. He wants them to know that the anointed one, who is God's king, who won't be removed, who will always reign, is Jesus. He is the king. His resurrection proves it. I don't think we can underestimate the enormity of this. The Lord's son is his anointed. His death and resurrection confirms, proves, shows, and is fact the reason God confidently stated in this psalm, my king will always reign. And there are massive implications for this. The Lord gives all the nations to him as his inheritance, we see in verses 8 to 9. You know, this makes the richest man in the world. Who's the richest man in the world? Anyone? Sorry? No? No, he's second at the moment. It's Carlos Slim. Do you know who Carlos is? Telecom, that's right. He basically runs all the communications in um, South America. 73 billion. That 70, that's kind of a lot of money, isn't it? <laughs> he's, really, he's, he's really getting on in age. He ain't spending much of it. All of that money is kind of like five cents compared to all of the earth that belongs to this inheritance. No matter who Carlos gives his money to, his descendants, his inheritance, whoever it goes to, it's worth about, uh, overestimating here, five cents compared to what this father gives to this son. He owns it all. And as he owns it all, he also rules with an iron rod. He's king. And so it's not inappropriate for the king to rightly rule and not allow dissension. He will deal with it, and it does have a permanence. You know, do we see there that dash them to pieces like pottery? Apparently, when you smash pottery to pieces, you ain't putting it back together, right? It's that kind of picture. The anointed has the authority and he uses it. So here we have the two scenes. Raging, plotting against the Lord. The Lord, no, it's not going to happen, I'm afraid. I will still rule and reign. Jesus is king, he is Lord, he does reign forever. Where does the psalm end? This is where it really needs to impact us. Read with me verses 10 to 12. Therefore, let me just stop there. That's an important therefore. Because what we've actually got is, in light of a rebellion, in light of who God is, this is what it all means for you. Let's go. Therefore, you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath will flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God is saying, be warned. I don't want you to realize, not realize who I am. I don't want you to think, oh, it doesn't matter. I want you genuinely to be warned. And the blessing for you today is you have that opportunity today. 
Be warned. But it gets so much better. Here, here's what we see. We see him say, because of his, uh, we, we know his great love, he says, well, kiss the son. See, I don't want to be angry with you. I'm the king, but I'm not just some horrible king who will rule you as a dictator and grind you into the ground. I'm the exact opposite to that. I want you to come to me with a kiss. Many of you know my feelings towards this kind of affection. And, uh, and uh, it really got brought out to us one time at a Bible college when one of the guys who was from Chile was preaching, one of the students, and you know, uh, greet each other with a holy kiss. And he said, you Anglos don't do that enough. So I'm pausing until everyone here kisses each other hello. We all freaked out. And he paused for a long time. <laughs> and then he laughed at us and then we moved on. It's not, it's not us needing to do that. It's us seeing here that to kiss the son is to say, I, I submit to you as my king. And you're giving me the privilege to submit to you as my king in an intimate way. That we can have peace. You don't kiss people you're enemies with. This is a making peace with. Kind of puts a spin on how offensive it was for Judas to betray Jesus with a kiss. See, this is what we see. That God is saying, all that warnings and all that harshness that you may not have liked hearing can be dealt with by my actual king, his death. You can come to me with a kiss. We can have eternity together. Acknowledging the son's authority. We talked about at the beginning who has the power. It's this son. But it's so great to hear that the one with the power wants us to come to him in such an intimate way dealing already with what we have done. He has washed away our sins. And so, if you kiss the sun, there's no fence to sit on. Instead, you see at the end here, well, what do you do? You serve the Lord in verse 11 with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is the response that we need to take. So my question to you as we uh, get near... Uh, to the end is are you going to kiss the sun there cannot be a fence if you're not a Christian today or you're wondering where you stand before God this isn't a psalm which is supposed to uh, bring up a guilt trip it's a psalm in which is supposed to remind you of actually your state before God which is serious and then you need to be overflowing with joy as you realize that he's dealt with it and you can have a relationship with him. The response, to say another way than to kiss the son, is to acknowledge that Jesus is your king and to, from this point on, trust in him. And if you do that today, you know that there's no way that he will ever let you go. He is the king. He is the one with the power. But if we're going to kiss the sun, and if you have done that today, I think we need to take seriously, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
See, last week when we looked at Psalm 1, I, I mentioned that the first two Psalms are kind of like uh, two opening doors, like those doors um, that we came in today, that open up the Psalms for us. And last week, as we saw, um, kind of the same idea, but today we're focusing on a king. Last week we were focusing on two types of people, the wicked and the righteous. You need to be righteous. And if you're going to be righteous, you meditate on God's Word. You meditate on God's Word. What goes with meditating on God's Word is, well, how would you respond if you meditate on God's Word? Well, we see it in Psalm 2. You fear Him. You cannot fear Him. And we'll, we'll flesh it out just for a moment. And you rejoice. If you meditate on God's Word and read it a lot and you don't have a right fear and joy, then we need to come back to God and ask Him for those things and to see them in the Psalms. This is where this psalm takes us. But I'm sure there are some, some of us here that are thinking, I don't want my God to be like that. I want Him to be all loving and nice. You know, He loves the little children. I don't want this notion of fear anywhere in my Christian vocabulary. But I think we can avoid it because fear is a very big theme in the Bible. Now, God is so powerful, so in control, He rules with an iron rod. We just need to have a right understanding of fear. We see its importance because Proverbs, when it, Proverbs kicks off, what do we read? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, actually, rightly understanding who God is, His character, who, the fact that He's in charge, is a right fear. It's a right response. It's the beginning of wisdom. If you flick it around the other way, I don't fear God at all. I don't have any sense of worry about Him. He's... Then the natural progression of that is you kind of treat Him with disdain. You maybe ignore Him. You may... You're not interested in Him because He's not the one who rules. It's good for the Christian to fear God, but not in a cowering fear. What if He destroys me? I don't know. I'll worry about it. No, no. This is the same God who says, kiss me. He's made peace. But we do that knowing what he's like that he is lord of all you see it's good for the christian to fear god, fear god but not in isolation not without knowing what he has done for his people and so not in isolation it's with joy uh, uh one of the puritans william bates said uh, uh, this little quote, which I've, I found very helpful. This fear of God qualifies our joy. If you abstract fear from joy, joy will become light and wanton. If you abstract joy from fear, fear will then become slavish and will be worried about it. See, this idea of fear is to ground us in the character of God. But, we also remember, when we think about the character of God, we know what He's done for us. That the character of God is of great love. That He died on the cross for us. That He draws us in and He wants us to be with Him forever, where there'll be no pain or suffering and all joy, and we can be full of gladness and rejoice. And so if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, as we see in Philippians, blessed is the... Uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Philippians says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So we're fearing and rejoicing at the same time. 
a spectacular thing to see. How great is our God? See, my definition of uh, rejoice, uh, of rejoicing, is just to be glad about a certain situation and to do something about it, to act on it. See, to rejoice is to say, oh, I'm really happy, that was excellent, I really enjoyed that, fantastic, is not rejoicing. To rejoice in something is if you went and saw your kids perform before uh, Christmas at one of their uh, uh, carnivals, whatever they did, um, one of their performances, and you were there and you delighted in it, it brought you smiles and you clapped them, and then afterwards you gave them a big hug and, and you praised them about it, that is rejoicing. It's being glad about something and acting on it. He has given us so much. Surely our response should be that fact. If you're not a rejoicing type of person, it's not good enough to say you're not a rejoicing type of person. I tell myself that. I don't think I'm naturally inclined that way, but that's absolutely no excuse, and that's the challenge for you from this psalm, I think, in that way, that if you kiss the sun, you rejoice, and you think about how you can express and act that more. We want to be welling up with gladness for what he's done. We want to be living a life where we sing his praises. We want to be bold in in how we live. We worship him in everything. Our whole life is a living sacrifice. We revere God with awe because we know how powerful he is. So as we finish today, and this great psalm comes to a close, can you say that you've kissed the sun? Can you say that you are blessed because you have taken refuge in him? The warning is there for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you are uh, in charge of all. You gave your son, your son all the inheritance. You see our rebellion and it's, it is absurd. And yet, as you see our absurdity, you didn't just say, well, I'm king and you're all gone, all destroyed. You brought your son into this world to give us life, to turn our rebellion into right fear and rejoicing. Help us to make 2016 a year of fearing always and rejoicing always. Amen.